the question that I began with last time you know, was, does God exist? And the, uh, that's seen as the most important question. And my point would be, well, no, actually, that's not the most important question. And in fact, the, the, you know, if you take Anselm or Aquinas and the period in which they're writing, that really wasn't what they were facing. They didn't live in society uh, in which the pervasive understanding was you know, questioning God. It would not have been obvious to a pre-modern that this is the most important question or even a pressing question uh, you know that most people in the day of Anselm or Aquinas were in some fashion believers of some fashion some you know Catholic Christianity so Aquinas never described his work as natural theology uh, this is George Henry it is seldom noticed that the so-called proofs for the existence of God were perfected at a time when the existence of God was barely questioned. Uh, and at you know the end of each of the five ways, Aquinas ends with the little coda, everyone understands this to be God. And this is, you know, Karl Barth is going to go back. Ironically, I was quoting Barth last time as standing over and against uh, apologetics but Bart reads Anselm in this way now I, I think that Bart is wrong uh, in his reading of Anselm and I'll I, I can prove that I think in some detail but he's right I think in this idea that what they're the, the situation in which they are arguing is not the modern situation in which you're literally having a discussion with an atheist, but they're doing a kind of theoretical discussion, and this is the way that Bart, you know, reads Anselm, that he's building on faith. And if that were true, if that were the case, then then I could agree with Bart. But, but uh, so interestingly, Bart will distinguish between Anselm and Aquinas. So, so, Henry says the problem of the time was not in Aquinas not really to persuade people to believe in God but to help them relate their belief in God to the nature and conditions of the world and to see that their belief in God and their understanding of the world mutually illumine each other that is that they already had a world view inclusive of their belief in God and these arguments in this understanding of their role was that they were an expansion of a kind of coherence in order that things cohere in this, in this way of arguing. Now again, you know, I think we can agree with that whether we agree that Anselm and Aquinas you know, were in fact, that's what they were about. Um, Nicholas Walterstorff has argued that the medieval project of natural theology was profoundly different from the Enlightenment project of evidentialist apologetics. Uh, it had different goals, presupposed different convictions, and was evoked by a different situation. I mean, I think you could just add here, it was a different world. It was a different worldview that was at work. It is true, he says, that some of the arguments, some of the same arguments occur in both projects. 
they migrate from the one to the other. But our recognition of the identity of the immigrant must not blind us to the fact that he has migrated from one world to another. That is, that the function of these arguments in a medieval, pre-modern period was as part of the overall coherence of an already accepted Christian worldview. The way they're going to function in the Enlightenment is, first of all, in the Enlightenment, you're presuming that you can begin with a blank slate, that you can begin with pure reason. Uh, and then on the basis of that systemic doubt, which is you know, the nature of the foundationalism of René Descartes, that you can use these arguments then to produce proofs, absolute proofs for God on the order of mathematics. That's what Anselm is claiming. Uh, and and uh, I should say that's what Descartes is claiming in defense of Anselm. You know that Descartes is going to, uh, he likes Anselm and the ontological argument. There's a reason for that, because they're the same kind of arguments. The cogito, I think, therefore I am, a kind of necessary argument that backs you into a corner, is very similar to what Anselm is doing in the ontological argument. They're both necessary or absolute arguments. So, we need apologetics, but what we need is for... Uh, apologetics and theology to provide a compelling account of God and God's redemption of creation in a world constituted by practices that have made Christian speech unintelligible. I think I'm referencing Stanley Howells here. Particularly to those who continue to think of themselves as Christians. That is that Christianity is really, even among Christians, uh, is not really the worldview that we adhere to. That may have just sounded strange to you. That is that, uh, you know, the test of this in John that we're doing on Tuesday nights is, you know, there's the word religion and there's the deed religion. But the way you tell what people really believe is by what they do. And most evangelical Christians are practicing atheists. In other words, they, their worldview is actually that of the surrounding culture. And they, they don't understand this. And their practices then don't cohere with a Christian understanding because they've really not accepted, you know, the, tra the, the they've not done the hard work of the transformation of the mind. And so I think that's part of the role of this topic is it's not a topic just for non-Christians, it's a topic for Christians in which we fully engage all of our faculties and understand how the moral and the, the intellectual all work together. You know, that was our discussion last night, that uh, people who are ignorant of Christ or don't recognize Christ are ignorant uh, not just in an intellectual sense, but they're morally culpable. John says it in a harsher way. He said they're liars and deceivers and they're of the Antichrist. In other words, their ignorance is, in Soren Kierkegaard's terms, rebellion. Mm -hmm. They refuse to know. And that's sort of the situation that we have here. So the Christian apologist cannot defend the God of the Bible on a foundation, a grammar, a logic, a reason that presumes atheism, right? 
that presumes doubt is the foundation. You understand, I'm not, this is exactly what Descartes is doing. He's saying, presuming that we can doubt everything, then we can arrive at God. What you're really presuming is a kind of uh, modernist enlightenment, you know, atheism. This is what uh, you know, Haman, who is a friend of Immanuel Kant, says to his friend Kant. You know, Haman is a very devout Christian, I think, of a New Testament sort. And he says, you're a nihilist. You're beginning, your, your starting presuppositions are nihilistic. And so, in this post-modernity, you understand the language of foundationalism, and postmodernists say they're anti-foundationalist. Is that all? Is that all familiar to you? Is that the Is that that there's no like absolute foundation that from which we can begin? That, well, that's the, that, in other words, that's the question. What they what you know that they're presuming is really the foundation in modernity is that of Rene Descartes in which you would lay a new foundation. That is, Descartes is picturing you can get rid of the foundations of culture. You can get rid of all presuppositions and you can lay a different foundation. So is that possible? Uh, Yeah, I would say that's not possible. In fact, the entire project is simply a project that's an impetus of his world. (laughs) You know, he's just doing what what, what is being done. So, am I an anti-foundationalist? You know, we need to define our terms here. Yeah, in as much as uh, modernity presumed that we could lay a foundation ourselves. So Descartes says, let's get rid of tradition. Let's get rid of anything that depends upon, uh, you know, the authority of the culture or the authority of the church. Not to say that he wasn't going to be a Christian. He was just going to do a different project. Uh, And I'd say, no, I'm not a foundationalist in this sense. And here I'm speaking against, you know, somebody like Nancy Murphy, who has written a book on fundamentalism and postmodernism. She claims to be a, you know, uh, anti-foundationalist. But... I would say, no, we believe that Christ is our foundation. I mean, that's just right out of Scripture. And that might sound, oh, he's, being, he's doing a religious thing now. But, what I, but I think, no, that can actually, Christ actually does function as, in other words, here is our worldview. Here is the place that we begin. Uh, that Christ is a uh, foundation that we, in and through which we can comprehend all things, so that the person and work of Christ is truly a lens. You know, this this is a different picture of why you read the Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard of, or uh, C.S. Lewis talks about uh, being in the tool shed, and, you know, he's in this dark tool shed, and the door is slightly ajar, and there's a stream of light coming through the tool shed. He says you can do one of two things. You can look at the stream of light, you know, you can see dust particles in it, and you can, but you really don't see anything uh, outside of the tool shed if you concentrate on the stream of light. 
this is the way that many people treat scripture. They treat scripture as if it is something that is to be isolated from our view of everything else. So they, you know, they they examine the particles, they look at, you know, the historical evidence or they try to get and C.S. Lewis's point is, well, no, you come around and you look at the stream of light and follow the beam from which it came, and it opens up an entire world to you. And that's my understanding of the way that we do scripture and the way that we do apologetics. We don't use this thing uh, in isolation from a worldview, but we understand that this strange new world of the Bible is one in which we apprehend and we comprehend all of reality. That the lens that Christ provides us uh, is the, the, our access to everyday reality and to, you know, uh, whether you're talking about psychology or philosophy or the, you know, this is the foundation for these disciplines. And I believe that can be worked out in some detail. Uh, I've done this in a psychoanalytic perspective. You know, what is psychoanalysis apart from a Christian understanding? Well, it turns out to be pure nihilism. Uh, You can do the same thing. You know, this is John Milbank does this with sociology, his big book on... He he demonstrates that uh, while this sociology, there may be truths in it, and it functions in a certain level, but at its foundation, it is nihilistic. Connor Cunningham has done this with several areas in philosophy. He's demonstrated again and again how that uh, the, there is a kind of nihilism, a presumption of taking nothing and making it an absolute something. And so we need a foundation. So I'm not an anti-foundationalist. And I'm not a postmodernist in you know, depending, I never know what people mean by that. You know, if you mean by that uh, that you're a relativist, well again, you would have to define your terms. Is truth relative to culture? Now that's this is sort of a trick question. Can you do truth? Can you have truth? Do you have access to truth apart from culture? Or do you only apprehend the truth in and through culture and worldview? Both. In other words, is the truth, can the truth stand apart from a culture and worldview? I, I would agree with you that no. You understand the way the modernist would answer this question is to say yes. The modernist will say, oh yeah, we have the truth, scientific truth, mathematical truth, and even then up to you know religious truth that it's not dependent on culture. It's not dependent on language. It's not dependent yeah. on... And, and of course the postmodern recognition that I agree with is that all truth comes to us. We all speak, you know, in this group, I think we're all English speakers, right? Uh, does speaking English, did you learn that in the womb? You know, there were, you know, this is Augustine's picture of the way he learned language, that he just came out just already knowing language and that he has, an, you know, a private language. And so when he first heard his mother and father speaking, he just, he just had to learn their vocabulary. 
for the words that he already knew. That's, I hope you understand, that's not the way children learn language. That when a child learns, you know, that this is a, you know, he learns the word cup, he simultaneously realizes with the word what the object is and what it's for. Uh, that as he is enculturated into a world, that world unfolds for him. There is no such thing as a private language, in my understanding. Now, I'm, you know, if you go up to the to Truman, probably to Mizzou, in the philosophy departments, they're teaching that there is such a thing as a private language. They would say that there is truth that exists then in isolation from uh, our apprehension of it in a particular location. Well, if that were the case, why didn't a voice from heaven, you know, speak to us, you know, and, and give us the truth? What we have is the truth incarnate, that Christ has come to a particular people, to a particular language group, to a particular culture, and revealed the truth to them, because that's the only way we can understand truth, is through the language that we speak, and with that language, the culture in and through which we've learned it. So truth for us, finite beings, I'm not saying for God, but for us, truth always comes to us in a particular context. It always comes to us in and through a particular socio-cultural linguistic understanding. You know, we don't have uh, a, a neutral language. Now that's, that's not in any way to say that truth per se but I'm saying we're finite. We're not God. We don't exist outside of culture. And so God has come to us in our world to reveal to us an alternative world. So Christianity then functions on the basis not of convincing people of certain propositions, but on convincing people of certain understanding of everything that is when you become a Christian conversion is not I accept Jesus into my heart and I acknowledge the formal doctrines and construct of this institutional church now when you become a Christian you, you enter into a different world you become a follower of Christ and it only makes sense if you get that it, uh, the grammar and the logic that ordered one world is changed up. This is the significance, I think, of talking about you know, the kingdom of God or talking about Christ as the word. It's not that he has to be come to us in English or anything like that. But the idea is that the word of God is there is a deep grammar that is transformative of our logic transformative of our reason this was your point you know last time we met that William Lane Craig says that the logic of modernity is our only choice and I'd say no actually the logic of Christ is the true choice uh, that the logic of Christ and the logic of modernity are two very different things 
the logic of modernity we can trace it has a definitive history beginning with Rene Descartes. Mm -hmm. The logic of Christ is a counter logic. It's an alternative word. So it's not that man's word and God's word are on a parallel course. I believe that God's word breaks into man's word. That God's word breaks into man's world uh, so that the two are juxtaposed. You know, this is my view of sin. What is sin? Well, sin, I think, is systemic. It constitutes a world. What is salvation? It's the deconstruction of that world and entering an alternative world. So, and I might be off. I'm still kind of stuck. Um, so are you saying that you can't find Christ without culture? That uh, in as much as you speak... Or where'd you learn language? You learn. Can you can you come to Christ apart from being able to speak? Or do you have to talk? Right. You yeah. have to be able to speak. You have to have language. That Christ has come to us in and through the the avenue of human language. We learn language as a part of a particular sociocultural setting. That what language always comes attached to a world so we so we each know um, truth in our in our different contexts but like there's no like absolute truth that, that transcends those you know cultures that uh, you know the the truth of, of modernity that we learned you know it's not the same as like the example you had of the the culture that you know they determine things based on giving the the dubs and poison and if you flops to the right, left right, yeah, yeah yeah all that and so that may not be logical it may not be truth to the to the modernists but to them it is but then so like there's no absolute truth in that sense but there is a a truth a big T truth that we have to like exit the cultures that we're in into a new world or so let me yeah that's the the how do you come to Christ? Can you come to Christ apart from entering the body of Christ, apart from entering the culture of the church, apart from becoming enculturated into this new city, this new Jerusalem, this new Israel, this new kingdom of God? Now we're, that's what people are trying to do with the, the sinner's prayer. That's. I think that's it. I think that, yeah. I so what a... How how then does it? So my mind keeps going to um, I can't think of what it, what it was called the the boy that was like raised by wolves. Yeah, there were several of these. Mobley is the yeah, one in Jungle. There's no there's no language, no culture. Are they just unable to accept Christ? Are they unable not accept, but are they unable to to find that truth because of? Yeah, their so, lack of culture and language? So, I mean, the same question, can an infant in the womb become a Christian? Now here, you see, you understand, Christianity is going to divide over this. Mm -hmm. So you have Christendom that will say, well, of course they can. Not on their own cognizance, but we, as the parents or as the culture, we can baptize them and the baby can become a Christian. That's one view of Christianity. 
in which you can accept Christ prior to coming to you know uh, the, your own human agency or to age of accountability. My understanding of Christianity is that an infant is innocent, that an infant is uh, you know not in need of the, the atonement and not in need. Uh, but certainly there is in a child the potential. And so too with the wolf children, you know, they, they really, they were, they had the, uh, uh, actually some of these kids, uh, and I, there, were, there were several of them, some learned to talk a little bit, but they all died very young and didn't really ever. So, so uh, when we're talking about becoming a Christian, my understanding is this is not something that somebody else does for us. It's not something that we're, we can be born into, or it's not something like becoming a citizen of, of a country. This is, you know, Kierkegaard's big point with the Danish church. He's saying, you know, that you're equating citizenship in the kingdom of man and citizenship in the kingdom of God is the same thing. So my understanding is that, yes, we didn't, I didn't choose to be born. My parents chose for me. But my birth in Christ is something that I think that we choose that there's our agency is involved in it um, and that the need is is there uh, because we have been enculturated into a kingdom of the kingdom of man and we need to be uh, you know enculturated into the kingdom of God so there's no question. There is a, and even again, even the, as you pointed out, it's not just the issue of infants. It's the whole. There's a whole mode of Christianity, and I think you can just divide Christianity up. You know, there's forty thousand sects of Christianity, but actually, I think there's only two kinds of Christianity. We read about it last night in John. There's the kind of that John describes as of the tongue and of the word. That is, it's a Christianity uh, that is caught up in just the saying, and it's removed from the deeds. And then there is the Christianity that he describes as in deed and truth. And he says that's the authentic kind. Now I take this quite literally. In other words, I think that our real problem is that we imagine in an, a, 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 a perverse apologetics that we can come to God in word and tongue, in language per se, apart from the real world model. So I think this thing is more than just uh, you know something we talk about, and and you can take this as far as you want. You know what's happening in in the modernity is I think just an aggravation of the fall. I'm not the only one to say this is Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel who likes the fall and he likes modernity. But what he's saying about it is that with the fall of man we enter into cognizance on the order of the knowledge of good and evil. That is that human language is this binary system in which you can think because you can 
suppose you can pit one thing against another and you can kind of bootstrap your way up to uh, and he's saying even God needs the fall of man what Jacques Derrida is going to come along and say is wait a minute and Derrida is just you know doing what actually long before him uh, Augustine did that is if you have good and evil you just have two words and in those two words you need the evil to know what the good is and you know what need the you know the the two things cohere you don't have two distinct things it's like you need black and white in other words human language is always functioning on a binary system this is my idea that uh, sin will always be a dualism you know the Gnosticism is a dualism so what happened well in the fall we traded the command of God, the word of God for the word of man. In salvation, in redemption, we're being restored then to a proper use of language, not a one in which we find God in our language, in our words, but one in which God has come to us as the word. I think that's the that's the groundbreaking significance yeah. of the incarnation. So then, um, how is so the the African tribes where they're you know we don't know their language yet type of thing. They have a language and they have a culture. So now, how do they how do they find the truth in that and through that? Can you? Come in order to, here we, we may need to distinguish what is being said in apologetics as we have it in enlightenment thought is that there is available light. See, the two things are not accidental. Mm-hmm. Enlightenment, how do you come to the enlightenment? Because the light's available to you in nature. And so that any tribe, any people has the light available to them through their own reckoning ability. So this is like natural theology through the trees. And yeah, the, that you okay. could come to God. And what I would say is... I just I just thought of, like, uh, I mean, uh, that's... You can, you can come to some sort of understanding of, like, of that, but, like, if, you, if you're truly, like, if you're just kind of involved in natural theology, you end up worshiping the creature rather than the creator in some sense like that seems to be Paul's portrayal in Romans chapter 1 yeah and again it's a the argument the discussion the debate is how do you read Romans chapter 1 and my reading of it is that you don't take the verse that says that God has revealed himself you know and that all men, no what you do you read the whole chapter and he says but this is what it has been done mm-hmm. that they've changed they've traded the you know, the creator for the creature. I assume that's not just some people. I think that we all do that. I don't believe in original sin, like, oh, Adam did it, so we all did it. But I do believe that inasmuch as we are all enculturated into a fallen culture, then we are bent toward, inclined, and I'm not talking about any mysterious thing here. I'm just saying that our parents are fallen, our families are fallen, our society has fallen, 
And so we're bent in that direction because that's where we've been enculturated. I don't, you know, it's Augustine, you know, talks about original sin as being something genetic almost, that we just pass it on through sex, or I think he literally thought it was the, this po- procreation. No, I don't, there's nothing mysterious that you take, you know, Genesis where God created Adam in his image, and then is at chapter 5 when it describes the birth of Seth, and it says, and Seth was in the image of Adam. Well, yeah, of course, because Adam's his father. We're all created in the image of our parents, of our society, of our culture. We all need redemption. And so sin has infected our understanding, not genetically, but culturally and socially. And that's why we're saved culturally. We enter a new culture. And again, there is a Christianity that you point out, Christian, that just says, oh no, you just pray the prayer and you can't continue on, you know, in the culture that you're in. So it's a Christianity of tongue, of words, and not of deeds. Because, you know, uh, as I've got here from John Webster, instead of furnishing an all-embracing interpretation of natural reality through its doctrines of creation, Human being and providential governance as they are shaped by a theology of redemption. Christian theology has found itself relativized by modes of inquiry apparently more universal in reach, less tradition specific in their procedures. What he's describing is that Christianity has been relativized, set aside by the presumption that we have a knowledge that is absolute that we can reach the heavens, that we can do what the Babylites presumed to do and storm the heavens on the basis of our own foundation, the mighty towers that we would build. That is a system that Christians believe in, and I just don't believe that. And I think me and Jesus are. (laughs) I don't think that's why Christ came, is to give us a parallel account to reinforce our understanding as we already have it, or as it's already available. That it's the light breaking into the darkness. It's a word from God that stands over and against the word from man. You know, John is very dualistic, in, not, not in a dualism sense, but in the sense that there's light and there's darkness, and you don't get to the light from the darkness that you don't recognize Christ, in fact, if you're committed to a system of darkness. I think enlightenment thought is not so light. And it is, in fact, uh, just uh, more of the same, of a kind of fallen understanding. So how do you keep... So you find Christ in culture, through the culture. So how do you keep him separate from the culture? That's the big one. <laughs> or is that not... How do we keep ourselves, maybe, yeah. in our understanding separate? And I think the, the transition is, you know, a, a lifelong transition. Uh, and that's why we read... So that's... That, that, that was kind of the point about the C.S. Lewis thing. That's why, we, that's why we explore Scripture, so that we continue to understand how we do this thing, you know? Yeah. 
It's a continual conversion. Yeah, we can talk about it as a one-off thing, but actually it's a continual process. We're continually in the process of transforming our minds so that we apprehend all things in and through the Word, which is Christ. It's not a magical you know, moment. Uh, no, it, it is a process. It is a dynamic, willful process that requires some energy on the level of... And I don't mean to separate human intellect from human morality uh, because they're never separate. Uh, I think, but I think that a Christianity uh, that is lazy intellectually is also morally corrupt. Uh, a Christianity that would make the church an institution that we enter into, rather than Christianity as a, a life that we live, it's a corrupt Christianity. A Christianity that is violent you know that I just maybe it's this strange place I find myself at the end of my life uh, I, I tried to you know I did everything I could to live peaceably <laughs> amongst those who believed in the thing I'm describing to you but ultimately I think that the two forms of Christianity cannot abide together and it's not that I chose to leave uh, and that's true in the history of the church that it's always the heretics it's always the Gnostics it's always the violent that would burn, expel you know Calvin I, I think is, is a, a picture of this Calvin's defending a picture of a violent atonement, penal substitution, through violence, and you know, so that the embrace of this mode, and and I'm t describing a kind of apologetic mode. I think that the way we often picture the defense of the faith is on the order of a kind of burning at the stake, maybe not literally, but a knockdown, drag out argument in which we will force the other. Uh, you know, this is Anselm. He's going to force you. It's a, it's a strong argument. Maybe it's a strong arm argument. But what we need to do is not coerce, offend in that sense, but we need to witness. We, we are like pilgrims who have been on a journey and we've seen a strange new country and we've returned, we're all aliens and strangers, Peter says, and we want to tell people about this other world, and so the way you do it is you witness to, to it, you describe it, you point to it. Uh, you can't make people envision a world that they are blind to, but you can point them in that direction, and they begin to catch glimpses of it, so that they would want to enter that place. And I think that's the mode of apologetics. It's a conversion not simply of the mind, it's a conversion not simply of the heart, but it's a conversion of the imagination. That we rework completely the way that people think and imagine not just a part of their lives, but every aspect of it.
Now this is easier said than done and this is a lifelong project. We're all in the process of this conversion of the imagination. And so I think that's the apologetic task is to witness to this holistic transformation. And it's 118. You guys need to, be, need to leave, right? Uh, pretty soon at 1.30 we should probably be. Oh, okay. okay. Um, we were watching a video, I think I told you about this, that we watched a video of a William Lane Craig debate in class and, and uh, the um, man who was defending atheism started to bring up uh, some of the, the scriptures and, and uh, he was kind of taking or at one point he was taking like the some of the figurative language uh, like the corners of the earth and, and he was saying oh the Bible defends, defends a, a flat earth theory and it defends a three tier universe and, and all this stuff and uh, people in the class were pretty crazy upset they were like oh he did, he's he's you know he doesn't even understand it's like uh and i was just thinking well maybe like maybe that's the point that that in order for to help him understand we don't say you know you don't get it but rather we show him like something else like show him show him it lived out like all the all these scriptures and maybe then he'll he'll begin to to understand because if he if he's just reading how is he going to understand without seeing an example of it? And some, sometimes that's the way I think that, like, uh, that, I don't know, like, we learn through relating to experiences, right? That that I can't really quite understand what, what the teacher's teaching me unless I have something to relate it to, you know, um, or, or some way to, to see this concept in real life. And maybe that's the same way that we need to approach helping people understand this worldview, you know, that, that it would actually be something that we can show them instead of just say, you know, you don't understand, you don't get it, you know, I don't know. Yeah, we need to, you're right, that we need to engage all their faculties, we need to engage their uh, virtues, we need to, uh, the, uh, there is no aspect of this. That, so what's happening in a William Lane Craig and I'm not, again, I think I, I'm not unappreciative of things that he right. does. But what tends to happen in a modernist debate is you get this very literalistic reading that, you know, you, gotta, you have an atheist giving us a literal argumentation. Mm-hmm. And, and the strange thing is that very often the, a, a conservative is doing the same sort of literal reading <laughs> It's just with a, you know, he'll give it a different meaning. Or, and so, what's happening in Scripture? You know, when it says the four corners of the earth or on the day of creation. or You know, I think this is, that the Bible is not, an, is not a piece of science. It's not a philosophy. It's not a, it's introducing us, I, I think, throughout. Like, you know, I don't mean to, to use the word literature here in a limiting sense, a delimiting sense, but what good literature does when you read The Lord of the Rings, and I, you know, that you enter into an alternative world. Yeah. And this, I'm, I'm going a long way around here, but the novel, the modern novel, 
is itself a development from a Judeo-Christian understanding. You may not believe me, but if you study literature, what's taking place, the structures, the d- dynamics, the mechanics, this is another interesting thing. You, know, you go to a secular classroom and they'll say, oh, well, look, the Bible functions like fiction or it functions... Well, that's sort of missing the point. Is what's happening in literature, in good literature, is in fact a development of an understanding of the imagination of human interiority, of human personality, that is first revealed to us in Scripture. So there is a kind of in modernity, a very, uh, you know, kind of flat earth understanding on part of both the atheist and uh, the Christian that is missing the fact that uh, you you have to set aside the spectacles of modernity and uh, put on uh, an alternative understanding, an alternative worldview. And again, I don't mean to say this is an easy thing because we're all just so saturated in the place that we've been, where we've come from. And it may be that we come to grips with this a little at a time. But if we don't get that that's the goal, then we're never going to begin this journey into an alternative understanding. You know, this is on the issue of peaceableness. It's a typical example of what I'm talking about on a larger scale that if you argue the notion of nonviolence on the basis of the logic of a given culture, well, no, that's stupid. Who would ever, you know, do that sort of thing? That just by logical necessity, we all see that violence is absolutely necessary. I would agree. Given this rationale, given this parameter of understanding but not just with peaceableness I think that's the way the whole ball of wax works that this whole thing called Christianity it's just so implausible it's so unlikely given (laughs) this you know given one understanding of the world so what we have to do is change our frame of reference we don't say that you know oh look Christ died and we can fit that understanding into an already existing frame of reference no that is the chief cornerstone in which we build an alternative you know frame of understanding so you do not get to the death of God on a cross having started from someplace else it just doesn't make sense we begin there. That's the foundation that we build upon. And then we can begin to apprehend and rework and understand. So that that's the idea here, you know, that if we get to the God of the philosophers on the basis of these arguments, I'm afraid it's precisely this God that stands over and against the God of the Bible. I'm afraid the God of the philosophers resembles too much just pagan thought Um, you know I'm with Friedrich Nietzsche that 
that uh, the two do not cohere, that this God has, has died. So, would you say that it is getting, as culture continues to change, that it is becoming more difficult to find that truth through the culture because culture is changing and becoming more anti-Christian culture or anti-Christ culture. So, so for instance, um, maybe when you were growing up, or even before that, it was easier to accept that you know, accept Christ because uh, that's just that's how it was. People went to church, and people you know, Christ, Christ like the Christ culture. Whereas yeah, I today, see, I see what you're I don't know how to put it into words. That there, it's I, I have two thoughts. You know, the, the one is you know this is sort of the uh, you know back to the family. Who is the guy there? Uh, the you know oh if we could just return to the 1950s and 60s, mm-hmm. back to when America was good and when you know we were true patriots and the country was Christian. I was there. <laughs> now. And, and there may be an even more insidious danger if you imagine that being a good American of the 1950s and 60s makes you a Christian. It may be, in fact, that, it, that there was a kind of Christianity, and this, uh, you know, this is sort of the Christianity I was inducted into. Then I spent the next 30 years trying to figure out what that had to do with the New Testament. And I had to leave the country for 20 years to figure it out, you know. That's my recommendation, you know, if you want to go somewhere else. <laughs> but, uh, so there is a kind of insidious form of Christianity that, in fact, may be more uh, dangerous than just outright atheism and more sickly and evil. Now, I, I say that, and I'm uh, even as I say it, I'm thinking... You know, that surely that can't be the case. But I would say that there is an honest atheism, and I don't mean the kind of pop atheists that we have. They're just, they're just kind of the, uh, you know, reverse side of, of a fundamentalist Christian. They're just a fundamentalist atheist. Mm-hmm. Same thing. But I, there is a kind of atheism that's very close to the kingdom. Uh, that may in fact be better off than a sickly form of Christianity. Now I'm not going to make that call or say where that is, um, but I think you can at least see it in the way that people, what they do in their actions. Uh, so if somebody is still living according to the deep grammar of their culture, but acknowledging Christ, uh, I think they've missed the point. They're still living in the wrong reality. We need to relearn the deep grammar, and that's what we're trying to convert people to. We don't reach Christ on the basis of prior metaphysical claims that have been given to us because of the culture in which we live. We come to Christ on the basis of accepting completely alternative claims. There was a, uh, 
there was a sale in the in the bookstore on campus uh, at the end of last semester, and I was looking through some of the books, and I came across there was a devotional book that uh, it said uh, fitting Jesus into your busy life, and I was I was thinking, you know, that's exactly the mentality that screws us up that we think, oh, I have this life, and now I can throw Jesus in there, and I'm I'm good to go, but. Actually, it's it's like a, you know it's not like we have to enter into something entirely different you know and uh, it's unfortunate that that's how we often think of it you know yeah Jesus uh, Jesus is a part of uh, he's a, a, a will help me up the step step ladder of success mm-hmm. I can fit him into my busy life because he'll you know the same people do Buddhism for the same reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the yoga and the Buddhist, you know, oh, meditate, and that'll make you a better Wall Street, you know, tycoon. Mm-hmm. So they're doing the religion as a kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, aid to uh, their success in American capitalism. And that's the way Christianity works for most Christians. Mm-hmm. That evangelicalism is just part of, uh, you know, it, it, it will calm you, give you good family life. You can medit, you know, give you good morals so you can be successful. And unfortunately, I think this whole thing is meant to mess up our lives completely. Mm-hmm. That it doesn't make us more acceptable and successful. That in some way we check out completely, which is hard to take and and not not necessarily a happy situation. But I think that, that, well, in another sense it is that you want truth, the true joy of the Christian life is not to be found in the pursuit of excellence according to this world, but it's a, an alternative goal. And